0: have a Bible. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we will be wrapping up this chapter today and then taking just a two-week break because uh, the team of five men are coming from the States tomorrow. Jody and I are picking them up. Pastor Brad uh, Hain is um, one that's been here a few times before in the past. So he'll be here this week and uh, he'll be filling the pulpit next week. So next Sunday you'll hear from Pastor uh, Brad Obviously, men, you heard that he'll be here on Wednesday as well, leading that study. And then the following week, well, that's the dedication week. So we'll have Pastor Steve here. So he'll be guest preaching that Sunday. So we'll take a couple week break um, after we finish up chapter four today. I want to remind you, as we look at this, that um, Paul opened this letter to Timothy with instructions regarding false teachers, and then he sort of moved on to discuss proper conduct in the church, didn't he? And we looked at that over the course of several weeks, talking about the conduct that is becoming of, of people who are part of the house of God. And then in chapter four, he returned to the topic of false teachers. He's warning Timothy that the false teachers, ultimately what they do is that they lead people away from the truth, but the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so to be wary of false teachers, and you might have thought that he would have gone into a long, lengthy description of how to spot a false teacher, what, a, uh, what a, a false minister might look like, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what he did was that he directed young Timothy to consider his own responsibilities. What should his ministry look like? What kind of qualities should char- uh, characterize the ministry of a good servant of Jesus Christ? And last week, we looked at just six of them. And I just wanted to quickly recap those really briefly. They're not going to be on the screen, but just to say them. And if you had notes from last week or didn't, you can sort of jot these down really quickly. But we began in verse six, looking at these qualities of a good minister. A good minister of Jesus Christ warns his people of error. That was the first one we looked at in verse six. It is the job of the minister to warn the ignorant, people who who don't know the truth, the ignorant of the folly of their ways to point them to Jesus Christ. That certainly is a role of the minister, but it's also the role of the minister to warn the righteous of their folly when they fall into sin or if they have sinful habits or attitudes. That is the job of the minister. He's to warn his people of error. Secondly, a good minister of Jesus Christ must himself carefully follow the truth. And that was also in verse 6. The goal of Scripture for all of us is to conform us, isn't it? We don't want to be conformed to the truth of the world. We want to be conformed to the truth of the word. And so the minister, for certain, must constantly be uh, um, feeding on the truth so that he has something to give to his flock. He must meditate on it. He must study it. He must digest it. A good minister, in order to be able to warn his people of error, must know what is true. And by teaching his people what is true, they then too can identify error. And we also looked, number three, that a good minister rejects ungodly teaching. Really looking at the the idea that a lot of people spend, I think, maybe too much time listening to and looking to all the false teaching. It's okay to know a certain amount of that. Obviously, that's helpful for discussion and, and whatnot, but But really, a minister is to avoid the influence of that in his own mind. Your mind is a precious thing. You are to protect that. In fact, Scripture says that we're not to meditate on those things, but to meditate on what's true, noble, right, and just, and pure, and lovely. So we must reject ungodly teaching, avoid the influence of it. The fourth thing we looked at was that a good minister disciplines himself toward godliness. And in verses 7 through 9, he began to talk about a bodily bodily exercise thing, that it profits, you know, it's profitable, but only for a little. But godliness is profitable for all things. It has a promise of the life that now is and of the life to come. It keeps us in right relationship with our Heavenly Father in this life when we're pursuing godliness. When we're living godly lives, we actually have a, a, a wonderful life because we have a wonderful and right relationship with Christ. And ultimately, it's preparing our soul for eternity, isn't it? We also saw that a good minister is willing to labor and suffer. I'm sure that's my favorite one. But the truth is, hard work is necessary for all servants of Jesus Christ. Because, well, Paul gave us two reasons why that is. Because believers themselves will sit at the bema seat judgment of Jesus Christ that we will actually be judged by Jesus. It's a, it's a reward a judgment, but it, we'll, we'll, we will receive rewards based on how faithfully we lived our lives here on earth. And that, that does require hard work. It's also hard work, though, because of the unbelieving world. It's very, very difficult, isn't it? It's a challenge to, to face unbelievers and try to get them to see that their soul is at stake, that ultimately they could face eternal judgment by God. And so many times they're going to suffer reproach, aren't you? You're going to suffer reproach by trying to share the gospel. And so we saw that he must be willing to labor, work hard, and willing to even suffer for the sake of Christ. And the sixth one we looked at comes from verse 11. And it says, uh, basically in verse 11, these things command and teach. And so a good minister teaches with authority. It's not our own authority, it's the authority of God's word. And God's word says, command these things of the people. So that was really a part one, and today we'll finish up with a part two, and we'll look at the remaining uh, five characteristics of a good minister of Jesus Christ today, and we'll look at verses 12 through 16. Follow along as I read. It says this, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you Lord, for the opportunity to sit under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that these words would not be my words, but they would be your words, that you would speak through me, Lord, that people would see these, this is uh, the divine um, words, these are divine words and divine authority talking here. Lord, would your spirit be here to reveal truth to our hearts, Lord? May our hearts be open to what you want to teach us, Lord. We all want to learn from you today. And so I pray that, Lord, um, you would just be with us, fill this room with your spirit. Lord, may your word go out in power and in truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were taking notes last week or if you're just starting today, you can start with number one, but technically this is number seven, okay? (laughs) Point number seven, however you want to do that. A good minister is an example to believers. Believers. A good minister is an example to believers. And he says this in verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. Now, firstly, you must note that Paul points out uh, that Timothy is, well, youthful, isn't he? Let no one despise your youth or your youthfulness. Uh, He was probably in his 30s, so maybe you wouldn't look at that as being that youthful, but he certainly would have been to be considered an elder or a church leader He would have been really quite of a young age to be in that role. And so what Paul is saying here is that you're going to really have to earn respect in a different way because you don't have the years behind you to have earned that credibility. You're going to have to earn it a different way. And so he would have to begin working to set himself as an example, as a spiritual example to believers, as a a pattern for them to follow. A minister's life, his life, okay, is the most powerful message that he has. A minister can um, give a great sermon, give a great gospel message, um, but if it is not reinforced by his life, then he may as well not say anything. Because it doesn't really go anywhere, does it? You could be um, a charismatic speaker, a dynamic one, or even biblically sound but if you're not backing it up with a lifestyle to match, then it's, it's effective. And that is the case with many, many ministers today. And remember, we talked about what, what um, Paul is addressing here is a servant of Christ. So minister is the same word, diakonos, servant, where we get deacon. So it doesn't necessarily speak of just the pastor, but anyone, anyone who is wanting to be a willing servant of Jesus Christ in any capacity, any capacity of ministry, remember that that, that all of the roles and gifts that God puts in the church is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. All of us are to be servants of Jesus Christ. And all of us should remember that our lives are their most powerful message. You can go and talk to your neighbor, and you can give them a very compelling reason why they should believe in Jesus Christ, but if you walk away and don't live it, what reason are they really going to have to follow what you said? Philippians 3.17 says this, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have a pattern, or have, have us, sorry, for a pattern. Paul was able to confidently say to the Philippians, all right, I am living my, way, my life in a way that you can follow. It is an example for you to follow. That's pretty, pretty confident of Paul, isn't it? I read that and thought, well, that's pretty, pretty arrogant, Paul. Everyone follow me. This is the example that you want to follow. But you have to remember that Paul was an apostle, that he was specifically delegated by Jesus Christ himself to go and preach the word, particularly even to Gentiles. Paul uh, took that seriously. It dramatically affected his life. He had a dramatic change of of, uh, the pattern of, of his life. His normal pattern of living was drastically changed. Everything he did, every decision he made, was based on how will this glorify God. How will people see Christ in me? And so he could say, listen, I'm trying to set the example. It's not not arrogant. I'm trying to show you what this looks like. We are meant to lay out a pattern. And Paul says to the Philippians a little bit later in chapter four, verse nine, about how they, he was laying out the pattern. He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you see what he says? It's the things you learned. I've been, I've been saying these things, um, the things that you're receiving from me because you, you heard them from me, but not just those things. What? And you saw, you saw, you see, he backed it up With the way he lived his life. And so, here in our passage, Paul gives five areas in which we are to be an example for others to follow. Look what he says in verse 12: Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word. So, the first is in speech, that's what he's speaking of. It's not the word of God, that's not what he's talking about there. He means your speech. Be an example in speech. The Bible contains a lot of warnings about our speech, doesn't it? I mean, it's replete with warnings because we all have a little piece of our bodies that has an amazing amount of power. James Flynn might be saying, yeah, it's right here. (laughs) Kofi might be saying, yeah, right here, my legs, you know, whatever. But it's not. You know what it is? It's, It's this. You have great power in your mouth. It's called the tongue. Yeah. James talks about the power of your tongue, doesn't he? He said it's like a little spark, but it can it can set a whole forest ablaze. You can burn down an entire forest with your tongue. Probably be hurt, but you could do it. Proverbs 10:19, just to give you some of the the scriptures that speak about our speech says, "In the multitude of words sin is not lacking, but he restrains his lips is wise." There are some who just are just too quick to speak. They're really slow to listen. Just talk, talk, talk talk, talk, and he says, "Listen, when you have a lot of words come out, a lot of speech, a lot of speech, there's probably something wrong. Sin is probably not lacking. It's probably present. Wisdom is actually seen in those who restrain their lips. Proverbs 15:28 says, "The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just pours forth evil." A righteous person is taking a moment. Let me study how to answer. What's the best way I can address this? What's the best, what are the best words that I can choose here? But an evil mouth is just going, just coming out. Proverbs 13, three says, he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have <clears throat> destruction. Quite a few warnings there. Let me have you turn to Matthew chapter 12, if you would. Keep obviously your, your marker in first Timothy, we'll come back to this, but Matthew 12 Jesus um, himself spoke much about the power of our tongues. He he um, warned of where words ultimately come from. In Matthew chapter twelve, he is um, speaking to some of the Pharisees, obviously, and uh, how they uh, have a outward life that looks so good and looks so appealing and looks so righteous, but Uh, inwardly, he knew there was something off. And in chapter 12, verse 34, he says this, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That is, that is harsh stuff right there. You will give an account for every idle word. It comes from the heart. It's, uh, it shows the, the um, status of our heart. It shows us what is actually uh, there. And he says, your words will, will justify or they will, they will condemn we're told what words we are to use. We're told how we are to use this great muscle in our mouth, this tongue. In Ephesians 4.29, it says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You ought to know how you should speak and what you should say. It should not be a corrupt word. And if you're not sure what you need to look at and see, well, then is it, nec- is it edification? Is it an edifying word? Is it edifying that what I'm going to say? Meaning, does it build them up? Does it impart grace uh, to them? Who are we talking about? How are we talking to them? The truth is, in church, churches in particular, we have a fun little sort of um, way around this, I think, that happens Because we have concern for one another, and we go to our brothers and sisters, and we pray for one another. We're meant to do that, but a lot of times that happens in a very gossipy way. It's ecclesiastical gossips, I've heard called that way. We um, are gossiping and slandering about people, and then we cloak it in prayer. We cloak it in spirituality, and we say, oh, but God is glorified through that, and I want to tell you, he isn't at all. It either builds them up, or it imparts grace, or it's corrupt. That is it. You must watch your speech. We're only to speak what builds up, not tears down. If it doesn't impart grace, what it does is it parts condemnation to them. And you know, I was just thinking about that. I was, I'm just, I'm so glad that with Christ Jesus, grace is always grace. Aren't you? That we don't slip in and out of grace and then, oh, condemnation. Now I'm under his condemnation, but now I'm under his graces. You know what? We are always under grace. You are not under condemnation ever with Jesus. There is no condemnation. I always have grace with him, period, full stop. And yet we tend to be so ungracious with others when we have this constant flow of grace. And we slip in and I have grace to you and now I condemn you. I have grace to you and now I condemn you. And we do that with words. We really do. And that has to stop ministers, servants of Christ. Anyone who says I serve Jesus Christ is to set the example in speech. Why? Because it's observable. You can see it. It's outward. Another outward observable thing is conduct, which he says there in verse 12 as well. Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct. That is your manner of life. That's your day-to-day activity. Now, Paul has already talked a lot about conduct. I don't have to do a whole bunch uh, here. Conduct in the church of the living God. But he mostly addressed in the church, didn't he? In the church of God, this is how this is to look. But it's to look a certain way every single day of our lives. We, we're not to put on a front while we're here in the church, but then we have a whole different persona in the workplace or at the grocery store or when we're stuck in traffic. We are to, to have the same conduct. We're to, to look the same way. We're to act the same way. In First Peter 2, 12, he says this, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be, uh, sorry, by your good works, which they observe Glorify God in the day of visitation. We're to have honorable conduct. What makes your conduct honorable? That's a good thing to think about, huh? Uh, great, he says honorable conduct. What does that look like? I think James helps us. In James chapter three, verse 13, he says this, who is wise and understanding among you. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Do you see that there? So, a wise person, an understanding person, is going to show that he is wise and understanding through his conduct that's done in the meekness of wisdom, or you could say the humility of wisdom. A man's wisdom, a servant's wisdom, a woman's wisdom as a servant of Christ is measured by humble deeds. That's what he says, your humble conduct. It's not Speaking about acquiring truth and knowledge, he's speaking about the application of truth. All the truth you are digesting, and I love, we're hungry for the truth, it should be affecting our lives, right? How do I apply that to my life? It affects our speech, it affects our conduct, and these are very observable by the church and by the world. They can see it, but we're to be the example. But we also must shine in our inner qualities as well, shouldn't we? And those are listed next. There's three more listed here. And I say three, but you might be looking at this and saying, well, but there's four listed there. And you would be right. It says uh, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. It has four things there. But the oldest, most reliable manuscripts don't say in spirit. It just has in faith and in love and purity. I think the reason is is because those things are in your spirit. They're the inner qualities. So they speak of the same thing. So let's look at them really quickly. The first is in love. The love here is agape love. That's the love that's self-sacrificing, the love that loves people regardless of how you feel about them. You love them. You love them anyway. 1 Thessalonians, let me take you there. 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes the most beautiful message. I just want you to see this in chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. First, it's just a short left-hand turn, just a couple of pages in my Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. Look what he writes here in verse 7, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly, and justly and blamelessly, we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I don't have time to break all this down, but this is beautiful. Uh, what he, the, You can just see the love dripping out the pages here, can't you? oh, we just, you were dear to us. You know, we just, we wanted to be with you. We longed for you, well-pleased. And then he talks about how they labored among them, how um, they worked among them, and they preached the gospel. And he says, and you're witnesses of these things. We were devout, we were just, we were blameless. And you know that we also exhorted and we comforted you. Oh, yeah, that's love. But I left one off and charged you. He exhorted them, encouraged. Oh, you should live this way. He comforted them. I understand what you're going through. But he charged them. You need to do this. He did all that as a father does his own children. Fathers talking to you in the rooms here. We do all that, don't we, with our children? Don't we exhort them, encourage them in certain areas of their life? Don't we comfort them when they need comforting? While also, don't don't we need to charge them? Hey, you need to you know shape it up here. Right? We we do all those things, but it's as a love, loving father. I think a lot of times we look at agape a love and just think, well, I just need to be pampered. People just need to pamper me all the time. That's not what he's talking about at all. It is loving people and that means we get everything that Paul is talking about here. But do you see that? You see love is still there? I wanted to be with you. I longed for you. Even when I had to charge you, even when I had to say, you guys need to shape up. You need to do these things. That is love. Love is an inner quality. The other one is faith. It also says in faith, which is his commitment, not his belief. It's the faithful, uh, consistent faithfulness that he has to, to, well, to God, to his word, to, to his people. And you know what? That's not negotiable. That must be continual. It's a, it's a must because 1 Corinthians 4 says this. It says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. A minister, a servant of Christ, must be consistently faithful. There must be unswerving commitment to his people, to God, and to his word. It's mandatory. And the, and the last thing he mentions there is impurity. Uh, that refers to the actions, the intentions of his, of his heart. Of course, it refers to sexual purity as well. Paul had already addressed that um, in terms of the standards of an elder being above reproach. Uh, a man, uh, a one woman, a man. But it refers to the actions and intentions of the heart. That's pure. So the outward observable things in speech and in conduct are super important example. But even those inner qualities that should shine out in terms of love and faith and purity, that is to be an example to others as well. So that's number seven. We'll go through the others a little bit quicker. Let's look at number eight. He must be a good minister. A good minister must base his ministry on God's word. Look at verse 13, going back to our passage. Verse 13 says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. This verse defines for us the major work of all ministry. (laughs) All ministry must be based on God's word. Thoroughly biblical in every aspect of it. In fact, the word says give attention to. That's that word It's familiar to us, prosecco which uh, more recently was used in chapter four, verse one, of those who were giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It means they were clinging to. So he says here, you need to give attention to or cling to these things, which are what? Reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Those three specific things are mentioned. Let's look at reading first. What is reading? Well, it's the reading of scripture. It's the public reading of scripture. Paul says it there. To Timothy. He says, you know what you should do? You should give attention, cling to reading. Don't give up reading the Bible in church. Why are churches giving up reading the Bible in church? Read the Bible in church. We're to do that. Read it right out loud. You know what? It doesn't start with Timothy. We can go way back. In fact, I want to take you to a wonderful example in Nehemiah. Okay, you're going to go way back to the Old Testament, but it's one of my favorite examples of the public reading of scripture. Um, and I think we're going to try to adopt the exact same way they do it here. I think you'll be really excited about, <laughs> about that when I read this. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, Ezra is leading the people uh, at this time. They have been led out of captivity. They're back in Jerusalem. And in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, he's going to read the Bible to all the people. And in verse 1, it says this, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate that was in Jerusalem. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So that's the Bible, right? Their Bible at that time. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women. This is verse two. And all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Verse three. Then he read it, Uh, Read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. So I think we're going to start doing that. That'll be a good one to implement. Morning until midday uh, before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him, and then it gives a bunch of names, I'm going to skip, they were just standing with him, look at verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, so they had a stage for him, and when he opened it, all the people, they stood up, so they actually stood up in honor of God's word being opened, and then in verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. So they even yelled out, amen, in church, okay? And while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Go down to verse eight. So they read distinctly from the book of the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So there you go. Reading goes way back, even to the time of the exiles. The Bible was read out loud and then also they gave the sense of what they read out loud and helped people to understand what had been read. That is, that is teaching, isn't it? He he taught them, he helped them. And that's interesting because that's the next two things, really speak of those two things, the exhortation and doctrine. Um, And they kind of fit bothly into the category of preaching, but let's look at exhortation, all right? And as I mentioned early, uh, this is the challenge to people to apply the truths of scripture to their own life. That's when we say, this is what God's word says, you know, this is how you apply it to your life. And um, I want to show you that this goes back, um, there's actually a a record of this in the early church, the second century church, Uh, the church apologist Justin Martyr, he described a typical Sunday service in the second century. He says this, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place. So they didn't just walk down to the neighborhood church, they actually came from all over, from the cities, from the, the country, they all came to one place and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has finished, the president speaks. That's interesting. They had a president, apparently, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. That's exhortation. Imitate what has been read. The third thing was doctrine, which is teaching. It's didascalia. Fifteen times that word's used in the pastoral uh, epistles. So, you see what he said here, what you need to give your attention to, speaking even specifically to Timothy, to build your ministry on God's word, you got to make sure you don't neglect reading it, don't neglect teaching it, and no, don't neglect telling people to imitate those things, to apply it to their lives. We must read God's word, we must teach God's word, and exhort people to apply those truths to their lives. A good minister bases his ministry on the truths of God's word. Ninth, going back to our passage here, a good minister fulfills his calling. This comes from verse 14. Here he tells Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Timothy, apparently at this time, we already kind of learned he was young. We also sort of know that he was somewhat uh, timid. He might have been entertaining thoughts of leaving, of quitting, of being in done. done, just throw in the towel, I'm done. Timothy wasn't beyond the temptation to leave the ministry. As an apostolic delegate of Paul, even, he understood discouragement. And if you read the writing of Paul here in 1 Timothy, and particularly 2 Timothy, I'm gonna take you to some passages here, you'll see, um, you can see that Paul is really trying to encourage him a lot, to stick with it, and to encourage him that suffering and the difficulty that he's experiencing is just part of it. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter one. I'll just run through some, some verses here. You can see what he's writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy one, look at verse three. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Remember, Paul had to leave Timothy. and, he, and In First Timothy, he's saying, I hope to come back to you, but he obviously hadn't come back. And Timothy's even to the point of tears. He said, I, I remember your tears when I had to leave and you know, I want to come back to you, but let me help you. I remember your faith. Let me call to remembrance, even the faith of your grandmother. I was there. I, I saw this. I want to remind you of those things, and I want to encourage you. Stir up that faith. Stir it up. Remember that God has given you a gift. Do you see that? He's encouraging him. Look at verses 12 to 15. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold Fast the pattern of sound words, which you've heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing, which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This, you know, that all those in Asia, they've turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermogenes, who said, listen, you need to, you need to stick the course. I'm suffering too. I mean, people have turned away from you in all of Asia. No one's, you know, I'm alone, man. But he's, you stick with it. Keep that good thing, that good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 3 there. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? Yeah, I know it's hard, but consider yourself a soldier. Endure. You know, buck up a bit is what he's saying, right? Carry on. You, you can do this. But here in our passage, go back to our passage, to encourage Timothy to remain faithful, Paul actually gives him three motives for not abandoning the ministry. Look at the first one. He says this in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. So he's saying, remember the gift. Remember the gift. And gift there is charisma. And that refers to gift that's given to all believers at salvation. It's the gift of divine grace which comes with the indwelling power of the holy spirit and what he brings in us are gifts they're god designed god assigned gifts which are a blend of of spiritual uh, capabilities that he's given us and they act as a channel through which the holy spirit then can minister to everyone else <laughs> isn't that incredible He said, don't remember what God has done. He has deposited this thing in you, and it's a gift, and he wants to use that gift to minister to other people. And all believers have that. I want to encourage you today, remember the gift. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's brought with him all this wonderful blend of capabilities, gifts that can be used to minister to others. Wonderful. In fact, 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold gifts. Nope. As good stewards of the manifold grace. Don't forget that grace is much more than just salvation. Grace is the Holy Spirit. Grace is the gift within you that you didn't have before Christ. He says, to be a good steward of grace, you need to let the Holy Spirit use the gift. Do you see that? To minister to others. Are you using that gift? Timothy was down a bit. He thought, I might, just, uh, might, I might just leave. And Paul says, remember the gift. There's a gift in you, and God wants to use it. But he also says, remember the affirmation. Look what he says, which was given to you by prophecy. Now, obviously, prophecy was certainly... Um, alive and well and and running quite differently than maybe we see see today. Uh, There, Timothy's giftedness for ministry that had to be publicly affirmed through direct revelation from God. God somehow, we just don't know how that happened, but God affirmed that Timothy had a gift. He refers to it back in chapter 1, verse 18. Look what he says. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you may wage the good warfare. There was some sort of um, prophecy that affirmed his giftedness for ministry, and Paul reminds him of that. That was the Holy Spirit. You have a gift within you, given you by the Holy Spirit, but also God directly revealed that to us. And then he also says, remember the confirmation. He says, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership there. Eldership is uh, press on it's a body of elders So there was a group of elders you could say an elder elder board maybe that this group collectively Confirmed the giftedness of of timothy his calling to a ministry there And so really for timothy to bail out right now To just bail out and quit and go home would be to really fly in the face Of the gift that god had given him the affirmation from the holy spirit and really the clear consensus of godly men around him. And so Paul is reminding him of those things. It's meant to strengthen his confidence. Many ministers of Christ entertain the thought of leaving uh, ministry. It's hard. It's wearying. And yet we're seeing earlier that hard labor, willingness to suffer approach. Though, those are all qualities of good minister. And he's saying, listen, you just need to continue with it because God is using you. He's given you a gift everyone has some kind of a ministry because you've been given a gift. use that to the fullest of your ability for him. Let me go on to number 10. Number 10 is this. A good minister is diligently committed to his work. Verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. The word meditate there is melata'o, and it means to attend carefully or be diligent in. So that's why I I titled this part to be diligently diligently committed to his work. It speaks of diligence. Um, It it requires, ministry requires constant thought, it requires constant planning, it requires constant preparation, and certainly uh, prayers. Particularly in a full time ministry sort of role, all those things are to be. Uh, Present and active in your life, and that requires diligence. You just can't let one of those go. In fact, he says, Give yourself entirely to them, which means he's totally to be immersed in his work. Now, let me make sure I help you understand that doesn't mean a workaholic, but when he's working, he gives 110%. He gives all that he has to his work. I think a lot of ministers can be slothful in this area, particularly in, in uh, preparation for sermon and attention and detail to that. Interestingly enough, this particular week, because I, I do really strive to give proper time and attention to my, my study, there were very important things that needed my attention this week. Sometimes you have to drop everything. Sometimes you, ju- you just do. It's just too important. And there was a lot, and, and not much of it was the building stuff. And I had to do that, And I've struggled, I will tell you, i struggled to find time this week to prepare. And in times like that, I did have a day. I sat down with the Lord and said, okay, Lord, you know, you've scheduled my week this week. You know that these things are important. Your people are important. I'm going to need you to do something here, right? I'm going to need you to show up. Would you just make my prep time just flow? Would you just, Lord, bless it? And he did. You know, he just... He put this together uh, for me because God is, he's good. He's good. But I struggled with that when I got to that point. I said, oh, I just haven't given like the time I normally give uh, to this. But I am giving it to other areas that are important. And that's the point there is that as a time and attention and all the things and your thoughts and your prayers, all those things go into being a a ministry-minded person. In other words, Your heart and your thoughts must be on God and his word and his people all the time. There's not a time that you really can ever clock out of that. And in a church, particularly, we're all the family of God. We're always interacting with one another. And we got to make sure that we're really mindful of where our heart and where our thoughts are in pertaining to one another. Let me give you number 11 for the sake of time here, a good minister progresses in spiritual growth. It's the second half of verse 15 that that comes from. He says, meditate on these things, give, it, give yourself entirely to them. And then he says that your progress may be evident to all. So he's speaking of spiritual growth there. Unless anyone think that a, a minister must be um, flawless to be a servant uh, of God, Paul mentions the necessity here of spiritual progress, spiritual growth. We're we're all progressing, right? All of us, including me, including your elders, including all of us, we're all progressing. Every year that goes by, I hope to look back and go, have I progressed, Father? Have you you, uh, broken strongholds in me? Have you uh, progressed me spiritually, sanctified me, draw me closer to you? Do I look more like Jesus this year than I did last year. We should all be saying that. And you know what I'm encouraged by? Paul didn't feel like he, he reached that. I know he said, hey, I'm setting the pattern, but the same tone he says, but I haven't made it there. To the same group, actually, Philippians. He writes this in Philippians three twelve: Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended But one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that Paul said, you know what? I have made it there. But that's why I keep going forward. I keep progressing. No one here has made it, all right? No one here has set the trophy on the shelf and said, 100% sanctification right there. We're all going forward. We're reaching for Christ. Keep going. Paul ends here with just a final exhortation to Timothy and really, I think, to all ministers as well. But here's what he says in verse 16. Let's just look at it. He says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So Paul wraps up his charge to Timothy by commanding him to do two things. He says, take heed to yourself, on the one hand, and on the other hand, and to doctrine. It's the same word there, didaskalia, teaching. Take heed to yourself, take heed to teaching. And as we look at this, each of the 11 characteristics that we've looked at of a good minister of Jesus Christ found through verses 6 to 15, they fit into those two categories, taking heed to yourself, personal holiness, but also teaching and public instruction. There's wonderful benefit that comes from that. And it's wonderful what he says here. What benefit comes from those things in all of our lives when we're reaching for personal holiness and we're committed to the proper teaching of God's word? He says, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now that might be confusing for some. So let me take those one at a time real quick and we'll wrap up. How can you save yourself by striving for personal holiness, all right, and committed to um, God's word and his teaching? Doesn't that sort of sound like works based salvation? Well, persevering in our faith as believers is a mark of genuine salvation. If you persevere in your faith, the Bible says there that you are truly saved and that it is confirmation not for god god doesn't need confirmation of that it's for you when you don't feel close to the lord when you back away from following him you leave the church maybe you whatever it might be do you feel like you're really saved people have have walked away because they really began to question i don't even know if, i don't am i saved and he says persevering in the faith proves that you are truly saved. You know, Jesus said to some Jews who believed in him, he says, you, you abide in my word. If you abide in my word, okay, if you do that, then you are really my disciples. You're really that. But you have to stay there. You have to stay. You have to truly abide in my word all the time. Romans 2 actually helps us with this. Romans 2, 6 to 7. Speaking of God and Christ will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life, to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So here you can see it again, that those who continue in doing what God has called us to do, you could say doing good deeds. Eternal life comes to do to those people how? By patient continuance in just doing those things. Why? Because we're looking for glory. We're, we're going towards immortality. What, we're, what he's saying is you're thinking eternally. You're thinking eternally. You're thinking of where we're going, where my home is going to be. I'm just going to continue to do what Christ has called me to do. What what these verses do is knock away any notion of just say a prayer and you're saved. Now go live the way you want. That's what it knocks out because that isn't in the Bible. Nowhere does anyone ever say, nor give us an example of someone say, just say these magic words and you're sealed for eternity. It isn't that. It isn't that. It's those who faithfully follow Christ from the beginning and all the way to the end. And that's why Paul said, I haven't even apprehended it. It's the already and not yet. I've already got salvation, but boy, I'm not leaving this path because I'm not going to be convinced until I'm there. And I'm looking at Jesus in the face. There's a wonderful (laughs) quote in the book. That I was desperately looking for in the very limited time I had, and I was going through the bookshelf, saying, "Gosh, is this back in storage in the states? I know I have this book. I know I could not find it because I remember—I even remember the page it was highlighted. And I just wanted to share it with you, and um, I was quite dejected that I couldn't share it with you. And uh, about 11:30 last night." I sat down on my computer to go through this because I wasn't entirely confident that I was ready for today, to be honest, because I had such a crazy week. I said, Lord, is this, <laughs> is this done? <laughs> you know, is this ready? And I thought of that book, and I said, oh, Lord, I really like that book. It would be really good to have that. Would you help me get that book? And my eye was a, uh, immediately drawn to this little, small little bookshelf I have off to the left, quite cluttered, to be honest. And I, and I just removed some some books that were blocking a few in the back, and I looked in there. I, was like, oh, I, mean, and I, just, I just reached, and I just kind of popped them open, and there was this little book, the one I was looking for. It's called Counsel for Christian Workers. And this is not a council book for people who are professionals. This is a council for every single one of us. It's by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. And he wrote this on page 38 here. And I just wanted to share this with you because we actually just read this verse in 2 Timothy 1. Because I think Charles just has a way with words, doesn't he? He was able to explain what I'm trying to explain to you way better. He calls it the middle path, the middle path that we are to walk. He says, Let us ask God to guide us into the middle path wherein we can say, I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. Careful, watchful, prayerful, as much as if our salvation depended on our own vigilance. Relying upon the sure promise and the immutable oath, knowing that we stand in Christ and not in ourselves, and are kept by the mighty God of Jacob and not by the power of our own, This middle path wherein we turn not to the right hand of presumption nor to the left hand of unbelief is the path which God would have us tread. Isn't that great? We don't go to this path of, oh, I just presume I've got it all licked. We don't go to this path of, I just don't believe. It's It's a middle path. It's, I understand salvation. I'm saved by grace. It's in the power of God that I stand, but I'm to walk faithfully to the end. I don't get the choice to go, Yeah, I'll just veer off of here because I'm saved. I'll go live whatever way I want. No one who is fit to follow Christ puts their hand to the plow and turns back and goes the other way, Jesus said. So this is the middle path. He says it will ensure your own salvation, Timothy. He says it will ensure your own salvation if you just commit to these things. Secondly, though, he says, it will not only save you, but what's it say? and those who hear you. So it's not even just for you, but for those who are listening. It ensures salvation for those who hear you. What is that about? The minister is not the source of salvation, but the minister is what? He's a channel, isn't he? The gospel is coming through. The truth is coming through. He's an agent for the gospel and for the Lord. And I'm gonna close with, if you will permit me, one more quote from this wonderful little booklet by Spurgeon, because he just gives a great example. He says this about the gospel, that teachers who teach the gospel, gospel must inculcate the gospel if they're to see the salvation of their classes. You, you must, must teach it. The gospel must be taught, is what he's saying. The whole gospel and nothing but the gospel, for without this, no great thing will be done. And then he goes on to say this. And if we would see the gospel spread abroad here, as it once did in Geneva, as once under John Knox, as it did in Scotland, as it did in Luther's day throughout Germany, we must have much holy living to back it up. After we've done the sermon, people say, well, how about the people that attend there? That was convenient, right? Someone's new here. Says, that was a great sermon. What are the people like? What about the church members? Are they upright? Are they such people as you can trust? What about their homes? Do they make good husbands? Are they good Servants, are they kind masters? People will be sure to inquire this, and if the report of our character be bad, it is all over with our testimony. The doctor may advertise, but if the patients aren't cured, he's not likely to establish himself as being well-skilled in his art. And the preacher may preach, but if his people do not love the gospel, they kick down with their feet what he builds up with his hands. Yet all this would not suffice unless we add an individual personal exertion meaning it takes work according to christ's law every christian is to be a minister in his own sphere every member of the church is to be active in spreading the faith which was delivered not to the ministers but delivered to the saints to every one of them that they may spread it according to the gift which the spirit has given them amazing passage here supported by charles spurgeon if you continue in taking heed to yourself in personal holiness, how are you living your life? If you continue in taking heed to the doctrine, are you following the truth of scripture? Are you faithful to proclaim it? You not only save yourself, you not only assure yourself of your own salvation, but you lead other people to it as well. Isn't that incredible? So I just want to encourage you, faithful church, that you, you are an example to people. They're seeing you. They're going to look at you. And in maybe a little over a month's time, we're going to be in a new place. We'll have an actual physical presence. New people are going to walk in the doors. And like Charles said, they might go and look, what are the people like? Are they really kind? What are they like <laughs> behind closed doors? And you know what you can do? You can answer that question for them. You invite them to your house. You bring them over and get them some food and let them see you live it. Your greatest testimony is your life and not just the truth of your words. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time, Lord, to um, hear from you. Lord, I thank you, a personal answer to prayer that you would provide this little Christian workers book to me today to share the wonderful quotes by Spurgeon. It's true, every single Christian is a minister. Every single one of us is meant to be an example, a pattern for uh, the non-believers of this world to follow, to see what it looks like for one who believes in Jesus Christ. Is their life really that much different? It should be. It should be. So Lord, just pray that your people would be encouraged to continue to look at their lives, to walk in personal holiness, to strive to live for you, that you would receive the glory. It's for you, Lord. It's not just so that we look good on the outside. It's so that you look good. We want to make you famous, Lord. We want to spread your glory from one end of the earth to the other. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.